0: and welcome to this episode of the ASHA Podcast. I'm Fred Wyant with the American Sexual Health Association, ASHA. January is Cervical Health Awareness Month, so we're talking today about issues around cervical cancer. We have three very special guests, and let me start by saying hello to Alicia Reiner. She's an actress, an activist, and a producer, and you've seen her in shows like Better Things in Orange is the New Black, where she plays one of the best characters ever, Natalie Fig. Figueroa. Hello, Alicia. Thank you. Hello. For time. Oh, we're so glad to have you. We also have a couple of members of the ASHA leadership with us. Dr. Maria Trent, a pediatrician and division director for adolescent and young adult medicine and Bloomberg endowed professor of American health at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore. She's also a member of ASHA's board of directors, so she's kind of my boss. Dr. Trent, thank you for taking time to meet with us today. <laughs> Wonderful to be here. It's wonderful to have you. And speaking of bosses, Lynn Barkley, Ash's president and CEO, she's with us and she's really the one who pulled this episode together. So, uh, what do you think, Madam President? Are we ready to roll?
1: I think we are ready. I was so excited when these two amazing women agreed to do this for us. This message is so very important, and anybody who is listening has to know it. And if you don't know it, you will by the end. So, thank you. And uh, I will try very hard to be quiet.
0: All right, well, no, no worries. First time, first time for everything, right? So, all right. <laughs> Thank you, for right. So, <laughs> I hope I still have a job after this. All right, well, Alicia, let me start with you. So it was a couple of weeks ago, you reached out to Len about January being Cervical Health Awareness Month to see how we might work together. And I know that you, you have a personal story here. So tell me, what is your interest in, around cervical cancer advocacy?
2: Sure. Um, I want to start by saying thank you guys so much for all that you do. Um, and I think it is so important that we talk about this stuff and that we help people be educated. And the reason I am here is because um, a couple years after I had my daughter, I had my first uh, unusual pap smear and went through so much fear and so much discomfort around it um, and ended up having a LEAP procedure, which I'm sure we will get to talking about later. Um, But it was what that experience made me realize is as a young woman, I was always taught the importance of having a pap smear, but I wasn't really taught why. Um, And I wasn't taught what, you know, I learned more about my cervix getting pregnant than anything else. I didn't really know like, what is a cervix and what is cervical cancer? And it's not something we talk about. It's something in my experience, whenever you hear cervical cancer or ovarian cancer, all I know is it's very grave and scary and nobody wants to talk about it and uh, recently one of my girlfriends who's just 30 had an uh, abnormal pap and had to have a biopsy and is sort of in a very similar place to where I was um, and is trying to decide does she want to do the leap and um, I am really interested in sharing this information with women more and mothers more And, and men more, quite frankly, um, we talk about HPV, it's like, you know, it's not just women. Um, so I really am excited to share this information that I'm not going to be doing the sharing. The, The doctor will be doing the sharing, but to have the conversation and I'm sure I will leave here learning more than any of you. And I hope, uh, your audience does as well.
0: So you brought up a couple of terms there that we will absolutely want to talk with Dr. Trenum about. But let me ask ask you, Alicia, about you mentioned HPV, the human papillomavirus. And of course, there are many different types of HPV and some of the high risk types are the ones that cause almost all cases of cervical cancer. I'm just curious, did you know anything about HPV before your diagnosis or how did that come up in discussions with your healthcare team?
2: Zero. I knew absolutely zero because I was... An adult. Um, And it was, it was, this was before the vaccine. Um, And I, I did know that when I, yeah, that's, I knew zero. I would say I knew zero. I knew zero about HPV and what it, that it had any relationship to cancer. I didn't know that it was possible that a virus could have anything to do with cancer. Um, That sounded like those two things shouldn't have anything to do with each other. You know, that's not what, cancer is not about viruses. Viruses have nothing to do with cancer. Um, That's a ridiculous, that was a ridiculous concept to me. Um, And I'm, I'm sharing my ignorance here in, all honesty so that people don't feel stupid. Like I'm a really, I consider myself fairly intelligent college educated woman. Um, And these were things I simply did not know.
0: And let me suggest it's probably not your fault. A lot of people don't know about these things. Dr. Trent, let me ask you about HPV and how you discuss it with parents and young people. And I'm guessing in your practice, this is often a vaccine discussion. I mean, how how, how do you talk about HPV?
3: So, you know, interesting. The discussion has changed considerably over time. So I'm a pediatrician, but my area of expertise is in adolescent and young adult health. So I'm a subspecialist who really sees young people aged 11 through 25. And for many years, we were doing a lot of the kind of preventive services work that I think we've been talking about here with pap testing and follow-up pap testing and sending people for extra uh, special exams so we could see whether or not it was pre or not. So we did a lot of that work um, as people who care for this age population, um, particularly young people who were sexually active. Now, what I will say is that vaccination has really changed the game for us all together. And so what we're seeing is HPV vaccination has really shifted the type of care that we're delivering in adolescent and young adult health care. Um, the new recommendations are even saying move from 21 to 25 to start pap testing. Unless you have some reason to suspect something else is going on, so I think that the new I think what we've seen is a shift because we now understand how HPV works in the systems of young women. But I think we also have been able to really eliminate some unnecessary procedures in women, given that ninety nine percent of what we see in cervical cancer is really tied to those high risk HPV types that are in the vaccine. So, from a pediatric perspective, I. I think that now we have new tools and innovation has enabled us to really shift public health around cervical cancer, and you can see the differences in the number of cases we see here in the United States. um, Certainly with adverse outcomes compared to say other countries who don't have access to vaccination. So I think we're, I, I think the conversation really shifts around as you say, to vaccines more than, oh, I've got to get your daughter ready for a pap test or young woman, it's time for you to get your pap test because we're really doing pap testing now almost as an exit from our clinic. So we're packaging people for young adulthood um, at at just before their 26th birthday. And that's when they're getting their pap test um, really now.
2: And can you, I'm really, I would love it if you would just lay out in the most, Basic way for people: Why? What is a pap test? Why do we get it? What does it test for? Um, and same with, you know, the vaccine. And what is HPV?
3: Sure. So HPV is the human papilloma virus. It is a virus that is linked to cervical cancer, and so is something that we certainly want to prevent in individuals. And while people don't like having pelvic exams, the reality is that they're life-saving for women. And so basically a a pap test, it's become better over time. It used to be two things that you had to use, but now there's just this one brush, this big brush that you just brush the outside of the cervix with. It's not painful, although sometimes people can have a little cramping. It's just the light brushing around the cervix. And then we put it in a little, uh it's like a short test tube but it's like a little short container that has some fluid in it that allows it to be tested in the lab not only can we look at the cells from that we can now do hpv testing which they've incorporated into an algorithm to help us to really guide people about their risk um it's really just a value-added piece to a pelvic exam that people um could be having um, or should be having on a regular basis um, as a part of their 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 sort of well-woman care. Um, it's interesting because there's some data that may suggest that we may be able to even collect the cells without doing a full pelvic exam. But for now, our pap we're doing, we're still doing PAP testing. Um, and that's with just the just the brush around the cervix. And um, very simple, just takes a few, <laughs> take the whole thing takes just a few minutes. It's it's really not cumbersome but I think it's very much value added. I would say for our patients, younger patients, sometimes they have not had a pelvic exam. And so oftentimes we're the first people to do a pelvic exam. We have that honor. And so we want to make it as gentle and um, not, not very scary at all. And so we do a lot of talking through, but I think for most adult women, it's a really easy procedure. And for women who've had children, it's nothing compared to childbirth. I mean, it's nothing compared to all the many pelvic exams you have to Check for the baby, so or, or what the service is doing then. So it's really a minor thing. Um, I, I think it's invasive for many people, and we have to be thoughtful about people who have a history of trauma. But it's a really sort of everyday thing, and um, to collect the cells. And then as far as the vaccine goes, you know they make the vaccine you know our body responds different kinds of proteins um we have a lot of talk about vaccines in the public so the hpv vaccine doesn't have any live virus it's not a live vaccine um it's an inactivated inactivated vaccine that um has proteins in it that allows it has the the multiple vaccine types um There are different manufacturers, but there's one that has all the high risk types um, that include um, those that cause cervical cancer, as well as those that cause genital warts. And um, so really a comprehensive vaccine that really protects people. I think the reason people talk about uh, the population I serve so often is because it works best if we get people before they start having sex. And so people are really reluctant. Um, We can give the vaccine to people as early as age nine, uh, but usually give it at the 11 to 12-year-old visit. And oftentimes people are like, oh, I just can't. I'm not ready to have the talk. And I am one of those parents, I, I can tell you, i never asked people to do things I'm not willing to do myself. Um, we had a talk with my daughter and my son before we put them on that bus for kindergarten. So we started having these series. I got a book and we read a book with them and we start the talks very developmentally appropriate, but who can touch you, what your body parts are those kind of basic things. And over time, the discussion evolves. So by the time they're 11, you know, we say you have to get this shot because sometimes later on when people start are in relationships and they, you know, they, they, they start to be intimate, um, there's this risk for this virus. And um, this is what the shot is for. Now, what I will say, and I have said to parents, is I'm not sure that you have to have the big sex talk because you want to give your 11-year-old the vaccine today. I don't think that that's a requirement. I think you're not giving them a big talk, other than to say, you know, you're going to get this Tdap shot because if you know it protects you against a respiratory infection, or uh, but it also, if you step on a nail, (laughs) you're covered, right? So you, you, I think some very simple explanations as to why you need to protect your teen are important. I do think we should be having those talks around sex and sexuality. But I, I don't think it has to be linked to the vaccine in the in the way that I think people have these big fears. I also think that providers have to be very open-minded about making sure that people have access because they're counting on us to really say, this is what your child needs today. So I, I, I think in long and short, vaccine is just our our body's response to some proteins that are are going to be identified as HPV type proteins and the body creates an immune response and so when they see actually would see the virus they are they're able to they they they're, they're immune to it so that becomes an issue and it has to be before they have had that vaccine type because but what i will say is that oftentimes people may have been exposed to one vaccine type, say they they've had sex, so there is value to the vaccine for young people who, and and young adults in particular who have had sex, because they may not have been exposed to all the vaccine types, and so they may have been exposed to one, but not not several others. And so it's really important that people embrace this notion of vaccine over time. It just you just have had more exposures the more sexual intercourse you've had, particularly unprotected. So I, I think that there's a ton of value, both vaccine, but also preventative service and pelvic exams, PAT testing for women. Um, Over time, I think it's the thing that has changed, I think, public health outcomes um, related to cervical cancer in the United States. And I think it'd be great if we could think about cervical cancer awareness week um, more globally, because I think that there's still almost um, uh, half a million cases, uh, if not more, women around the globe who are diagnosed every year. And so it's still a problem that has global implications. um, And we're doing really well here if we can get people in.
2: First of all, I actually just want to put a personal experience into having the sex talk early. I think, you know, if you have, if you're listening and you have small children, it's so much easier if you start early and then it becomes part of your family's lexicon forever. And I think it's also, you know, we're specifically obviously talking about cervical cancer here, but there are so many aspects to your child's body and owning their own um, power over their body. And um, uh, really, let's see, I wanna say this. Uh, there's a word that I'm looking for. So let's pause there. I'm gonna think of the word. Sure. Not autonomy, what, auto- not autonomy. Mm. Um, it starts with an A. a- agency. Agency, thank you. Yeah. Mm. So let's try that again. Um, I just wanna pause here and I have a couple of follow-up questions, but I do wanna put in a pitch to what you were saying, Dr. Trent, about the importance of having these conversations early. And I started having these conversations with my daughter when she was about a year old, like as soon as language was in the picture and we were in the bathroom, we would start to talk about the parts of our bodies and that nobody gets to touch those parts of the body. And the importance of your child having agency over their own body and having a voice about that. And that voice can't happen unless you as parent have the courage to have that voice first and help them have the language. So that then at age, now I have a 13 year old, by the age of 13, We've had this conversation so many times, pretty much at least twice a year, every year, that it's a normal conversation, it's not that scary. And my pitch here really is don't wait till 11 or the teens when it's uncomfortable and they're they're in an uncomfortable phase about bodies and language already. Start early so that it's part of your vocabulary as a parent early. Um, and in reference to the follow-up questions, Obviously, because of COVID-19, we're talking about vaccines in a very different way than we ever have. And I would love you to share with the audience two very specific things. One is We're talking about mutation of virus a lot right now with how there are new mutations and do the vaccines help for these new mutations? If you can speak to that about HPV, that would be really, really helpful. And additionally, people, you mentioned that it's not a live virus. Is this an mRNA virus? Like what, excuse me, vaccine? What kind of vaccine is this? So that people have more clarity and education about those things.
3: So it's interesting. Um, it's important that um, people understand that the COVID, you know, the, the COVID nineteen va- uh, vaccine and the COVID nineteen pandemic is really something that's quite different. Um, I think people sort of say that it's new, uh, but you know, in reality, people have been working on these mRNA vaccines. Um, for a very long time, and so that's why they've been able to develop them for effectiveness. But it's kind of like every year when we get a flu vaccine, um, people keep saying, "Well, you know, you know, I don't, I, you know, why don't have to get one every year?" And I think it's in part because we expect um, some different flu vaccines. Um, we expect some different types of flu that would occur. And so I think what we've seen though with HPV is we've not seen the kinds of, of mutations or changes that we've seen um, in something that's fluid um, as the COVID-19 vaccine. So I, I would not necessarily put these two in the same category. So we have some vaccines that we sort of get and we're covered. There has been no indication that people are will need a booster. Um, mm-hmm. And so I, I don't, that that in and of itself um, is, is I think just, it's a different disease process. Be, um, yeah, very yeah. slow, it's a very slow process. That's what we've sort of learned um, by actually studying adolescents over time, which is why it's sort of, starts at 25. Uh, many people will be exposed to HPV and actually clear the infection. And so there are all these other components um, that I think people should understand. Uh, the, the, gar- the vaccine, I don't call him by name, but there's one that is a non-valent vaccine, um, the combinant um, tissue, the uh, combinate uh, materials. And again, these are proteins um, that the body will show to the body. Right, So they have these protein types and the body will respond, will have an immune response to those proteins that then will protect the person over time. I think beyond that, um, I think what people should know is that there's no live HPV being injected into their child. And I think that that's the most important thing people should understand about um, the vaccination process um, for HPV. But the fact that we're covering even more vaccine types I think, than the original vaccine, there was one with two types and one with four types, and now we have a nine-valent vaccine that's now available um, that covers even more types, I think, is really critically important. Um, and what's, what's what's really cool is that it's, 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 recomm- it's highly recommended. It's been vetted by the CDC. Um, you know, millions and millions of doses have been given worldwide. Um, there are other countries, when you look at Australia, where they have virtually given in school, it's been virtually eliminated there. People are not seeing the kind of um, disease that we see here. And so I think our ability to embrace this is natural and normal is important. What's interesting is there's something in it, they call it an adjuvant, something that makes it work better. Um, and, it's, and it's the same adjuvant that we've seen uh, used in um, the have- hepatitis B vaccine. And so I think people, sometimes for me, it becomes a, a sort of a hangup that people have around um, the, the association with sexual behavior um, in adolescents during this time when parents are really worried about everything uh, and um, then they have to deal with this. But what I know is that we give another vaccine that's associated with sexual behavior. It's actually associated with IV drug use um, and um, no one looks at their, their two-day-old infant and says, I think these things are going to happen to my child. They look and say, I want to do everything I can to keep my baby safe. And so we give hepatitis B vaccine on day two or three of life um, before people even leave the hospital. And so the, the, the safety profile of the um, HPV vaccine has the same adjuvant. It's obviously a different, they're different proteins, obviously a different to a different virus. Um, but I, I think when I think about it, to me, it's sort of like saying, well, what's different now? why don't we wanna do everything to protect our child? They have so much more autonomy. They're moving into the space where you're not with them all the time. Why wouldn't we wanna protect them? And sometimes they do make choices that we don't agree with or they make choices that they regret later or they, so they get hurt or they, they do absolutely nothing. They, they have no sex at all, but they, they, they may marry someone, for example, who then has plenty of HPV exposure and then they're suddenly exposed. How can we prevent that? And I think that, I think that when we give them vaccinations, it's our way um, of really showing them how much we love them. It doesn't mean we doubt them or their ability. Um, it, it really is an investment in their future. And it's a, it's a part of the safety net. So I think that that's how I see this whole process of both vaccination um, in this era. Now I think you're right that I, we don't want people to stop thinking about vaccines. It's a really important of our public health um, uh, infrastructure and, and 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 public health practice. It's so important probably now more than ever. Um, I think people have gotten exhausted, but I think around this particular issue, I think we can't lose focus. And that's why I think this cervical cancer awareness week is so important. And us thinking about all the things that we have in our toolbox, be it vaccines, be it PAP testing, um, be it talking to people so they talk about talk about whether or not they've had exposure, they talk about family history, um, they have an opportunity to really share. I think there are tons of things we can do to keep young women women and young men safe from this particular disease. Um, I think the health related quality of life impacts on women and men can be quite significant. We didn't even talk about men that much because of cervical cancer awareness week, but there can be significant impacts um, across and gender.
2: just so, cause I don't even know is, is the HPV vaccine something that you do give to boys as well? Absolutely.
3: Absolutely. And um, because we want to have a complete circle of safety yeah. around everybody. Yeah. And, you know, you know, sexuality is, is quite fluid. Gender is fluid. And I think that what, what we've seen and I think it's really important that we understand people's sexual practices. But um, the reality is there's protective effects for young men and young women. And, you um, you know there are even protective effects. You know we don't. We also want to prevent cervical cancer in infants. You know there's rep- respiratory papillomatosis that occurs in infants, and um, we want to prevent their early exposure. So I think that the the impact of vaccination is far reach, reaching. I think the impact of surveillance helping women um, take good care of themselves um, and have preventive services and access to preventive services, which is a huge issue right now in the United States. Um, that's also important this week, us thinking about where are women gonna get good gynecologic care? Um, where are those services for um, um, young women, like college-age women who need great reproductive health care? Um, where are those services for poor and vulnerable women who may need care at free or low cost? Um, because I think that those are gonna be essential aspects of us being able to do the kind of work we need to do around cervical cancer prevention.
0: Dr. Trent, you mentioned earlier that the vaccine can be given as young as age nine and routinely at ages eleven and twelve. And you know, I, I'm just wondering, do you ever get pushback from parents on that aspect? Why, why so young?
3: Because it works better when they're younger, the data show that they have a really robust response to the vaccine when they're younger. Um, so that's a. But the biggest reason is because people aren't usually having sexual intercourse right before their before their 11, 12 year old birthday. Um, I think when you get into the 15 to 19 year old age group, that's when you see sexual intercourse begin in young people, and half of young people have had sexual intercourse by the time they graduate from high school in the United States. Um, and it's and I don't people are like, oh, not my young person, but I just think it's somebody's young person. And I don't think you can predict that it's gonna be your young person or not. And so um, I I think that those figures really emphasize for me how important it is that we start beforehand, but it's also because they have a very robust response to the vaccine.
0: Yeah, and where my mind went with that as well, you know, we wanna have the tetanus shot in place before you step on the nail, right? Not after. Well, this is not so different. So there you go. All right. Yeah. So that won't be their first. You
3: know, that's that's not their first tetanus vaccine. They've already been getting those. So this is just their te- tetanus booster. So they get boosters for other things, right? Um, but what I will say is, the other thing is, adolescent care falls off. Over time, so I think that the eleven to twelve-year-old visit is also one in which people are still coming in with their young person consistently, and um, where they can advocate for their child to receive vaccination. So I think it's an important transitional visit. Many adolescents begin to seek care on their own, um, maybe not thirteen or fourteen, but certainly uh, in the fifteen to nineteen-year-old age group. There are many places where they can seek care alone, um, and they but they still need and. Emote- they still need, which some people argue should, should change um, um, permission consent for vaccines, and that becomes a complicated issue if they're there for confidential care. So that 12, 11 to 12 year old visit really represents it's an easy visit from a parent perspective, communication perspective. They're still can you know they're still coming in for routine care, um, and it's before they've started having sexual intercourse.
0: Uh, I'm going to go off script just for a second. Lynn, remind me, didn't you tell me a few years ago you were having some interactions with one of your healthcare providers? Maybe it's even about your kids and the vaccines where you like took some of Ash's publications on HPV and the vaccines. I think you gave them to the to the pediatrician, to the doctor. You had to
1: educate them about all this. Is that am I remembering that right? Yeah, my kids are not young. My baby is 27. Well, there you go. So when he was going in for his sports physical, the vaccine had just been approved a few months before for males. And when I I said to my husband, I'm taking him this year. And so uh, because I wanted to make sure he got the vaccine. And when I said to his doctor, I said, so what's your position on the HPV vaccine for males? He said, I don't know. I said, that's okay. I do. So I did give him some materials and, you know, of course, they uh, give the vaccine routinely now, you know, uh, which is great, which is what doctors really need to be doing, uh, not questioning it, just, you know, here, it's time for your shot. Let's do this. Let me, if, if I may, let me jump in and ask a question. So Marie, you've talked a lot about, obviously, the vaccine, which is so critically important and Pap test. But there's also the HPV test. Um, and I don't think people, one, know about it, to understand the benefit of the HPV test. Um, and so can you talk just a little bit about that? And Alicia, I don't mean to jump on you, but, and I said I'd be quiet, but apparently I can't.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think it does check for, uh, checks cells for, um. To see whether or not you have a high-risk type of HPV, I think that most of us in professional offices are using that in conjunction still with PAP testing to determine how frequent um, you also um, need um, PAP testing. So I, I think it's a wonderful adjunct. I think for many years, people pushed back on it on its use in isolation, um, in part because sometimes people can clear those infections and they want to know whether or not you're actually having those changes in the cells that are on your cervix. But I think it's uh I think innovation in terms of our ability to detect uh, whether somebody has a high risk HPV type or not is really critically important, particularly when we see subtle changes. Um, you know, there's a spectrum, there are low grade changes and there are high grade changes and then there's those to Frank cancer. So they are all those things. They have some cells, something called ASCAs, which is like cells of, atypical cells of untermined significance. So there's a range of cell types, but I think that your HPV test helps us to really, the the typing helps us to determine um, whether or not you're carrying a high-risk HPV type or not, and how we need to do surveillance um, with that patient. And I have a
2: question, a a little bit of a follow-up to that, which is of the patients you see uh, uh, those who are sexually active. So women over a certain age, we won't, I don't want to uh, give an age because I don't want anyone to have a certain feeling about what age is appropriate, Um, but how many of them are positive for HPV, for some form of HPV?
3: So I think it's age dependent, so, so that's the other. I think it's more frequently in patients who are a little bit older. But the reality is that we have stopped doing as many um, pap tests and HPV tests in uh, young women now. And so um, for my population, they're, they're going to be the older cohort, in part because we aren't getting data anymore from the younger cohort. But even so, it's a very small population of people who don't clear. So um, I think in the past, we certainly saw um, abnormal cells and low-grade changes, but oftentimes, you know, patients, we would repeat those and they would be better. It doesn't mean they still aren't carrying sort of HPV in their system. It just means that those individuals um, have been able to clear that infection from their cervix, which I think is really important. And I think because we were spending so much money and time and effort and patient effort and patient discomfort and worry um, for so many of those people to clear um, really meant that we should focus on the slightly older um, young adult woman so i would say that in my population they're definitely going to be the older um, populations but i'm not seeing it as much as i'm definitely not doing as much pap testing and i'm certainly not seeing as many abnormal paps uh, in part because of the volume coming in but i just don't see it as much as i used to and it's because we're vaccinating so many people i think what's wonderful is you know we really serve a mixed group of people low-income um Uh, Patients in our primary care practice, but also young women who are um, insured but need confidentiality um, or underinsured in our practice. And so um, we are fortunate that um, we're able to have certainly uh, vaccine um, through a program so that it's no cost to most of our patients. And, um, and then we're also able to do the reproductive health care for the young adult woman. So it's really, in my practice, it's going to be the older, it's going to be people who are 21 to 25. um, Sort of the people who were left over in the switch, um, the switch that is occurring. And then really our it's going to be mostly our 25 year old patients that we're seeing, but amongst them, it's it's actually quite rare. um, Now. Um, It's actually, I mean, we have a system where we follow up all of them and send them a letter and that kind of thing. So, because I think people are waiting for their results and want to know what to do about it. Um, but it's it's actually quite rare in young people now. Uh, but it means that that 25-year-old woman, um, that 25, you know, the age group you describe is really that woman in transition. I think it really means that she has to take take a hold of her healthcare. care. Um, she has to really, so, you know, we often think what happens to our young people when they, because we're very, I don't know, supportive, and, you know, it's just like a nurturing place. And, you know, the adult world from a healthcare perspective is very different. You come if you wanna come, if you don't come, you know, I'm not calling, you know, I'm not checking to see where you are, right? Perhaps, especially if you're new, you never come. So, uh, whereas we call patients and follow up and do a lot of that, um, I don't call it parenting, but I would call it scaffolding so that people can have can have autonomy. And um, I, so I worry about the 25 to 30-year-olds to sometimes um, just because you want them to get used to having a provider, a person they can trust, um, feeling comfortable with exams. I think that's all really very important still for them.
0: Let me ask you, Alicia, I mean, we, we've been talking about HPV and vaccines here at Asher for, for years, and we're always interested in hearing what others are saying, maybe get a, a, a fresh take on it. So you've just had a crash course and all this stuff. So let me, so put on your activist hat. Let's say you're going to give an elevator speech to a parent who's, well, oh, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if my kids need it, that kind of thing. What would you like to say to parents to make sure they understand why the vaccine is important?
2: such a good question, I would simply say, educate yourself. like find find out more about it from reputable sources. Um, and reputable sources are a very important part of that sentence. from the pediatric uh, you know association, from the CDC, from um, doctors you trust, do the research. For me, What one of the things I've learned today is the statistics. I'm all about statistics and the numbers. And if you say to me, 99% of cervical cancer is based on virus and we have a vaccine, so you don't have to get that virus, that's hard statistics to beat. and that that's just that's hard science, and I believe in science. Um, and so that's what i'd I'd say. I'd also share, you know my personal story because I was in puberty and a teenager before the vaccine, and I have one of those experiences. Again, I didn't understand. It was all such new language for me when it was happening. So it was like, oh, you tested positive. Let's, we're going to wait six months to see if you clear this. And I I was like, "What?" I didn't even understand what that means. And that's really scary for young women to hear. And I think we need to have these conversations more and talk about what does that mean? What does that, what does that mean? Clear the virus? Like nobody explained that to me. And then when I didn't clear the virus, like, what does that mean? And oh, we see some precancerous cells. The minute you say precancerous cells about a body, it has so many emotional reactions. And the fact that 99% of the time around this issue, I imagine that's not a statistic, this is my imagining. um, Most women haven't heard of these things before and it's really rather shocking and upsetting. Uh, And that's, again, why I'm here having this conversation is one of my best friends is going through it right now. And just simply me being able to say to her, hey, I went through that, it's you're gonna be okay was so helpful because we are not educated about this. It is not part of what you learn. Just like, you know, we learn birth control, but we don't learn this stuff. Like my mom never told me about, Uh, you know, what happens if you, you know, don't clear the virus or if you have precancerous cells, like that was not part of my sexual education. And I think it needs to be, I think we need to have these conversations, just like we need to have conversations about endometriosis and we need to have, there's a lot of conversations about the female body that we need to have more, so that women feel more ownership and empowered within their bodies, and to have more choice. Um, and I will say, you know, I, I would love it if you'd also talk a little bit about a leap and what that is, because I had no idea. And um, I guess full, once you once you share that, I will share the end of my story. And to me, it's a, yet another reason why you might really want to think about taking the vaccine.
3: Sure. So the two things I'll say, the first one is I I have this vision. It's this dream that they will be at elementary school science fairs around the United States, the life cycle of the human being, or someone does one on um, cervical cancer and they they present the stages of cervical cancer and the, the timeline it takes to move from those places. I mean, those are the kinds of things that, that we never see the human body. We'll see the life cycle of a fruit fly, but never a human body. And so it's interesting. I think these topics could be totally safe spaces for young people from a scientific perspective, with a little support um, if we thought about it. Um, The second thing is you you talk about your procedure. So basically, um, a leap is when you have loop electrosurgical excision uh, excision procedure. So basically, there's a heated wire um, loop that is heated electrically, and it's used to essentially just scrape um, the cells off of the surface of the cervix, for both um, diagnostic reasons, but also for treatment reasons, because removal of that sometimes for many people can be an effective way uh, to keep the can- keep keep the cells from spreading. Right, so I think that that that's the thing. I think that. Um, that you're having now, the experience of it, I would have to say, you would be able to speak more uh, thoughtfully about what it feels like as the patient. Um, but essentially, that's that's what's happening during the procedure.
2: Um. Thank you, and uh, and I will I will share that. So I did have that procedure because. Uh, I didn't clear the virus, they were seeing more, like we kept on, I'm a a big watch and wait kind of gal. They kept on seeing more cells and it was time. And it was definitely a painful procedure. I also, um, unfortunately had a, um, what would you call it? Uh, um, A complication, I guess you would say. And I then, in my healing a couple of days later hemorrhaged um, and it was dangerous and scary. And I had to go to the emergency room and uh, I've actually never talked about this in public. And, um, and I have heard said that it may have been more complicated and more difficult to get pregnant after that. Um, and i wasn't able to get pregnant after that because of all that happened and i share that because i think it's it's a piece of the puzzle in thinking about these choices like we have to not just think about oh well i don't want to i don't want to put this vaccine in my body if i don't know you know like hpv is kind of rare and I don't know if I need, like the stories we may tell ourselves, but I think it's really important to look at all aspects. And that's what I really mean when I say, educate yourself, learn what, like, okay, why am I having this vaccine? And what happens if I don't have this vaccine? What, what does it look like when you don't clear the virus? What does it look like when you have precancerous cells? What is, when that happens, what happens to a body, and what are your statistics in that direction? Um, I think it's really important to look at look at everything from a three hundred and sixty degree point of view, look at all sides of it. And having experienced what I experienced,, um, I have, you know, I have no qualms about my daughter getting the vaccine um, because I never want her to go through that. Um, So if there's a way to keep her safe, as you said, Dr. Trent, um, that's something I'm really interested in.
0: That's, uh, thank you for sharing that. I, you know, we always say that the, the patients have some of the most authentic voices that we can tap into, because you've been through it. And um, I appreciate you for sharing that. Alicia, let me just continue that just for one more point. Uh, just thinking back on your experience. I mean, if you're talking to somebody who's just starting this journey, they've just had their, their first abnormal screening test. They're in the, oh my God, kind of moment. Yeah. What would be one or two things that maybe you wish you would have known that could have made it a little bit easier? Anything in particular?
2: You're not alone. I think the biggest thing is you're not alone. And even though similar to miscarriage or similar to a lot of female health issues, even abortion, women don't talk about these things. It doesn't mean it's not happening. Um, and it's scary to talk about. I think sometimes we as a society think if I don't talk about it, it won't be real. Um, and we, I think it's quite the opposite. The more we don't talk about things, the more they grow and fester. And one of the magical things about our planet today is in this, technological information age we can share information more easily just the way we are today on uh, you know on a podcast on a zoom on um, a multitude of channels and it's really important that we share this information and not be afraid of it Cancer is such a scary word for so many people. And this one's a biggie for me that I feel strongly about because it's preventable. You know, this is, it's a preventable cancer, which is, that's rare, right? There's, there's, you know, we all know healthy diet and exercise and meditation and all the good juicy stuff, you know, no, don't smoke too much. Um, don't, we know, we know what we're supposed to do with our bodies, but with, it's really rare that we can say I don't. I can't think of any other cancer where you can say, "Oh, it's preventable." Um, that's kind of magic, um, and I think we really want to use the tools we have.
0: There you go. We are near the end of our time, but I, I have to ask Dr. Trent uh, about the just quickly about the challenges of healthcare delivery in the age of COVID. I mean, I've heard a statistic that we're running a deficit in HPV vaccines of something like a million or however many doses, whatever the number is, it's a lot. Would you just speak just to that? What is it like for you and your colleagues to deliver these services in the middle of a pandemic?
3: So I think it depends on whether there's a surge or not. I think the challenge becomes how many people we can see in a day um, and get them into the office. Only a certain number of people we can have in the office at one time, although I think those numbers have gone closer to normal now. We've not had any trouble with our core vaccine, certainly in our office, so we're able to actually, if we're able to get people in, we're able to vaccinate them, and we actually made vaccination a priority in our clinic. So people who were due, certainly infants um, who were in that first year of life who need multiple vaccinations, but also our adolescents were an. additional. Additional priority for us who were due for vaccination, and so I think we have to continue to prioritize that during COVID. Um, what I will say is I think sometimes it's the procedures, maybe some of those that sort of um, have been described today. I think getting in for, um, I think, procedures that people consider important, but they may not be acute, I think that's much harder. Um, I do want to say, though, that um, even though I think sometimes people can experience complications um, from procedures, um, those like the leap for many people can be, you know, really life-changing and life-saving, so um, I think it's important that people talk to their doctor about the risks and the benefits when they go in so they know what to expect, um, including sometimes the things that may not go well with the procedure. They also have to take adequate time to really heal afterwards um, so that that tissue has a chance to grow back, so I I think that, um, but I think it's those procedures during COVID, COVID that I think may be a challenge. What we're hearing from our surgical colleagues is getting people in. But I think our OBGYN team has been really thoughtful about our ability to sort of see people. I think the final challenge is, is getting people to want to come to medical facilities during COVID. Um, and so I think we have to do a, think more about use of telemedicine as a way to sort of screen people, figure out who needs what, and then triage people effectively for services so that no one falls through the cracks. Uh, because I think I would worry about um, the people who need vaccination. I mean, I think there's a tricky time window um, in adolescent health. We definitely want to get the early ones in. Um, but I think we also want to deliver really high quality reproductive health services to women, even during COVID. And so even if that's a quick telemedicine visit with a triage and a short visit and more vaccination or whatever it is, I think we have to think use our resources very effectively to do that. Um, because I think we've worked really hard to keep our, our institutions safe. I mean, I think certainly mask wearing and cleanliness is a high priority within those institutions. So I want to tell people that it is safe. I have been, it's, we're all going to the grocery store. It's much less safe. People are going to sporting events, much less safe. (laughs) People are on airplanes, perhaps much less safe. We're doing all we can to really um, keep people healthy while they're in the office. And I think missed missed care can be something that um, what we've seen is resulting in people having complications later.
0: That's great. Madam President, can I toss it over to you to, to thank our guests?
1: You know, we could have, I, to me, and, and I do, we do live and breathe this all the time, but I learn something every time we have these conversations, and Leisha, I can't thank you enough for, really, for your heartfelt, um, really, your stories, and your, your challenges, and your questions, and, you know, so I hope we can do this again, and Maria, you are, as always, uh, one of my very favorite people on the planet, and You know, she clearly knows uh, pretty much everything. Yeah, (laughs) I know, I told you, you would really enjoy meeting her, Alicia. So thank you, Fred, that was awesome. And uh, I can't wait for part two.
0: There you go, thank you all very much. I wanna mention quickly, we've talked about a lot of terminology, a lot of tests and procedures and vaccines today. We have an interactive patient education tool called Understanding Cervical Cancer Prevention. That really breaks all this down so nicely. Whether you're entering screening, you've had an abnormal test, you need a follow-up, or you want to know about vaccines. We have we have versions in English and Spanish, and we'll put a link to that in the show notes. So I urge you to take it to, to, to check it out. Thank you all for being with us today. Lynn, thank you for pulling this together on such quick notice. Thanks to everybody who listens, whether you're downloading or streaming, we really appreciate you. Keep in check because we'll have more good stuff to come. And take care, everybody.